We left off with the teachings on the four messengers. It being implied that we're avoiding taking a look at those first three messengers. Perhaps we'd like to be the fourth one. And maybe you don't need to take one, two, and three into account. But the Buddha strongly suggests that we need to, and I think common sense suggests it as well. And the job of this teaching is to point that out, to remind us. Uh, but be, before we go further, uh, there were a few notes that um, I think need some clarification. I don't know how many people are uh, experiencing it the way a few of these notes uh, were expressing things, and so let me uh, clarify it. Uh, there can be a, a psychological tyranny of, uh, in certain Dharma circles, a feeling that unless you become a monk or a nun, preferably a monk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, it's going to be pretty difficult to do anything with any that's really deep. Uh, and that can be tyrannical and experienced on all, in all, on all kinds of levels. And I was not replacing it with another tyranny. You know, to use the... Uh, the quote from Tagore that uh, you don't have to go to the forest uh, to find God, but uh, you can come to the truth through your, your wife and your child. It's through them you can come to the truth. Oh, so now we all have to run out and get married and have children <laughs> if we don't already have them because otherwise we're not spiritual. And we have to become the head of some company and uh, actively join all kinds of organizations and I don't know what. No, uh, whatever your life is, uh, practice is of course taking a look at it uh, and it's more within the forms that uh, you're working with uh, to use them in a way that uh, is in alignment with our Dharma practice. Uh, there's a Hasidic teaching, a Jewish mystical teaching, very simple but I think very useful. I think I've mentioned it here many times over the years, uh, that God assigns a certain portion of the universe to each person. We each have a little piece of the world to care for. Take care of your piece, whatever it is. It might be a huge one or a small one, but whatever it is, uh, do it with your full mind and body. Really do it wholeheartedly and learn from it. So these teachings are uh, pointing to the value of taking into account that we must age, um, uh, fall ill, and uh, inevitably die. Um, why do we have to point that out? What value might that have if we've not been doing it? And I think it's safe to say that uh, most or many human beings, perhaps including all of us in this hall, uh, have more of ostrich mind than uh, 
Vipassana mind. That is, an ostrich, as you know, or at least I don't know if it's true, but uh, <laughs> when it's afraid, it uh, handles it by putting its, buries its head in the sand. Uh, the threat doesn't go away, it's just that you don't see it anymore, and you, got your, you feel safe, your head is buried nice and deeply in the sand. Nothing has happened. Uh, what good is that? So, if you do have ostrich mind, uh, this is a rehab center <laughs> for, for ostriches. Because uh, we're learning that it's how to take our head out of the sand and to take a look and, and to even discover that uh, taking a look at the fear uh, turns out to be not only not so bad, but extremely useful and may even result in a much more fulfilling and happy life and death. Uh, to review a little bit, some of the values, a central one, is that it awakens in us a sense of how precious, or it can awaken in us a sense of how precious our life is, and we can reorder our priorities or examine how we're living, and uh, knowing that we don't have forever, and how uh, precious life is, uh, this can have a very, very useful effect on us. And of course, uh, in a, a Dharma context, that implies, or even says directly, that when you do uh, review your priorities, uh, Dharma practice, or is living a Dharmic life, hopefully will be one of those reordering of priorities, so it can give tremendous strength and energy and power to your practice. Uh, if you let it. And that's why it's not just the Buddha. For centuries, people have understood that maranasati, or death awareness, can strengthen your practice tremendously. Uh, as we mentioned, it can weaken certain kinds of pride that we have uh, when we review the fact of uh, our vulnerability uh, regarding age and sickness and death, pride around those states. Uh, there was a teacher, Tara Tolku, Rinpoche, a Tibetan Lama who came to Cambridge Insight Meditation Center and stayed with us four days a week for many months a number of years ago and would give talks uh, on the Tibetan view of uh, shamatha and vipassana. And before his talks, he had his beads, which were made out of uh, human skull, human bones, and he would be muttering something. And... Um, I thought it must be some very secret mantra. And at one point I asked him, what do you mutter before every time he was about to give a Dharma talk? And he said, oh, uh, no, no, it's not a mantra. All I do is I remind myself, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And I, said, and I said, well, why do you do that before a talk? So he said, uh, that way I, it's a, a kind of a safeguard so I don't uh, take myself too seriously as some big Dharma teacher up here and do all the foolish things that come from that. Um, we, what was mentioned is there are a number of ways uh, in which these uh, life changes can be learned from. One is reflection. And I, I've mentioned a few of them. I'd like to... I may as well read it to you from the Anguttara Nikaya. This is from the Buddha. 
uh, five subjects for frequent uh, recollection. It's taught in every monastery that I've ever been at. The first one is, I am sure to become old. I cannot avoid aging. I'm sure to become sick. I cannot avoid sickness. I'm sure to die. I cannot avoid death. The fourth, all things dear and beloved to me are subject to change and separation. Five, I'm the owner of my actions. I will become the heir of my actions, karma. And we're not going to, this is not a retreat to go into those deeply. Some of you have used them a bit and I gave a few hints, a bit like the metta meditation. Uh, where you take up one, you turn it over in your mind, and you carefully review w what the implications are, and sometimes that by, uh, can restructure uh, the way you think and feel. It can also bring up fear, and if this is an appropriate meditation for you, and it may not, it should be at a time in your life when you can make use of this. If there's some, a lot of fear and sadness, or there's been a great loss in your life, or it's a, uh, there's some depression right now, it's not a good meditation. It's not for all the time. Um, but when it is, it can be practiced in somewhat the same way. That is, should the fear come up, uh, you would then uh, mix samadhi power with it. That is, you, you're actually courting fear. You're inviting it when you say words like this, or you can. And when it comes up, uh, you practice with it just as if fear would come up in your normal sitting. It's not that different, except now you've intentionally said, come on up. I've been practicing for a while. I'm ready you know, to look at it. And that can begin to take some of the power out of fear. It can take some of the power out of the fear of death. Uh, you can begin to see that when you look closely, it really often, in your own mind, at least I've seen this with my own, with my mind, it's not so much fear of death. It's fear of the idea of death. That is, the mind has, we're being eaten by time. The mind has created psychological time and a, a notion of what's going to happen to us. And of course, it's, it's the, the self, the ego, that's uh, so frightened about that. But in the moment, uh, it's more a futuristic um, imagining. Of course, it's one that will come true, not like some of our other imaginings. So there is some difference. Uh, and. Uh, and I'd like, I hope we have time this evening, if not uh, two evenings from now. Uh, meditations like reflection, uh, like certain specific contemplations, uh, these five reflections also, there's a very simple one that a few people in Cambridge have found useful. I found it useful over the years. The very same breath, the practice of Anapanasati in one breath can be turned into Maranasati, or death awareness. When you now, as you breathe, you take a look at the breath and you understand. The Buddha gave this meditation to one of his monks. I think it was Ananda, but I'm not absolutely certain. My memory is starting to go because I'm getting older or something. But, um, and in this, you see that literally your life hangs by a breath. And so as you breathe in, and then you breathe out, and you, you grasp the, the truth that if you don't breathe in again, curtains, you're finished, that's it. And so you're playing with breath. Now, this is always true while you're following the breath. It's just that at this point, you're noticing. 
and you use it to re-educate the mind. You use the, the breath process itself. And so that's another uh, way of doing it. And there are guided meditations, quite a few of them. Many of you who have read the Vipassana literature, you probably know the uh, cemetery contemplations, the stages of decomposition of the body. Uh, there's Atisha's uh, nine contemplations on, on death, which are, uh, can be practiced like a guided meditation, either with a teacher or you can do it yourself. And these are all formal practices. And for those of you who are rather new to these things, some of you have come from other traditions or whatever, uh, when pra- practiced properly, they actually give you energy, they bring joy, and they bring happiness. It may seem stupid or inconceivable. How could the contemplation of illness or death bring happiness? But you see, it's on our mind already. At some level, we all know this is going on. We all know we're aging, etc. And when you bring it to the surface and learn how to, how to uh, contemplate it, even in, let's say, in a formal way, a methodological or a systematic way, uh, one of the things you're doing is you're uh, letting it out into the open, and it can be a kind of relief. At any rate, people experience at the end of it uh, sometimes uh, feeling very light and clear and very concentrated. Uh, it's designed to do that. It's not an exercise in, in uh, taking us deeper into depression. That's not what it's designed to do, or it's not a morbid exercise at all. Um, But, you know, I don't know if you've had this experience. Uh, when you do metta meditation, and I think we all know that this is a, a, a very precious and wonderful meditation, especially the formal uh, metta meditation. Let's say you're sending, um, you're sending loving kindness to all beings. May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering. Let's say you've moved through sending it to yourself and people that you love and neutral people and people that you can't stand and finally it's everyone. And then you enlarge it to strong people and weak people and tall and short people and people in the north and the south and the east and the west, happy people, sad people, uh, creatures that live under the water, in the sky, on the ground. May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful and Tears of love streaming down. Your shirt is soaked with tears of love. And you feel so good when you get up. You're just such a loving person. It's so wonderful. And then you go into Harvard Square and somebody cuts in front of you online. And it's all over suddenly. In other words, it's very easy to send love to in an abstract way, in a sense. To sort of like the stars and the whole universe. It's harder to just a few people who are moving about in your own kitchen, or the person who is your roommate, or your boss. or uh, And so it's not to not do the formal metta meditation, of course. Uh, but it has to be actualized in, uh, in uh, it's, it's meant to be living metta. Metta has to be alive. You don't just do it in, uh, in a greenhouse. If you do, you will be like a plant that grows in a greenhouse. It's meant to be brought into action. And it's the same with this. In my experience, um, I've done uh, a number of these formal 
uh, death awareness exercises and meditations, contemplations, guided meditations, they're quite useful. And it's not one versus the other. But finally, life itself is the best teacher on these things. At least it has been for me. Things come up in life. And if you're willing to be there, the teachings are there. The curriculum is all set out. It's just there there are no students. No one wants to sign up to take the course. And on these issues, uh, just as in the teaching story, uh, the evidence is wherever we look. In the Mahabharata, the great Hindu classic, uh, someone, I've forgotten who now, there goes that forgetting again, um, points out that one of the most miraculous or strangest things or is in, in life is that people can see examples or instances of death all around them and still, not, and still conclude that it doesn't affect them. Not to not take, understand that it's about us. And so if you pay attention, uh, a kind of naturalistic observation, uh, you learn from er- all life, everything that's around you, a leaf, an animal, uh, a dead animal on the road as you take a walk around the loop, uh, a broken dish, a chipped dish, anything can teach you if you're sensitive to learning that lesson of impermanence and uncertainty. Uh, And so we see this with the people in our lives and of course, perhaps even deeper, is ourselves. When things come up about our own aging, about the tendency for our own bodies to fall sick, and of course, for our own inevitable death, uh, then uh, we're out of the laboratory. Then it's a question of uh, of testing our practice and to see how that practice, uh, has that practice been developed so it can help us to live. Because wis- wisdom is meant to be living. It's living wisdom. It's not spouting what the Buddha said or uh, what this Zen master said or anyone. That's good. It's useful. I just did it. I said what the Buddha said. Uh, but I... I have to go beyond that, because otherwise I'm sure it helped the Buddha, but I still have my problem. Um, We need a a different kind of learning, a different kind of... We have to learn these lessons firsthand, and no one can do it for us. Uh, There's a Chinese teaching story where uh, a a famous Chinese Dharma master is giving a talk, And people come from all over to hear this talk. And in the back of the room is a very old monk. And uh, the monk giving the talk sees him, and out of courtesy, because he's much older than him, he invites him to come up and sit next to him as he gives the talk. So the old monk comes up. He's uh, not very well dressed, shabby robes and all. Sits down next to him, and as this famous Dharma teacher starts uh, giving his Dharma talk, the monk starts making faces and nodding his head and going. (laughs) And everyone is looking and finally the the speaker sees it and he starts to become a little bit uneasy and he says, uh, what is it? What is it? You don't like my talks? And he said, I've come all this way. I've heard that you're a really great Dharma teacher. 
I've come all this way to hear you talk, but all I hear you say is, the Buddha said this, and that Zen master said that, and the third patriarch said this, and the sixth one said that. Uh, and he said, uh, I don't hear anything fresh. I don't hear anything alive. And then he pinched him. And the teacher went, ouch. And he said, ah, now I got what I came for. <laughs> yeah. So we have to do that. We have to, we have to learn that. And um, one way of characterizing this is, is uh, practice is about intimacy. Uh, Dogen Zenji, a, a great Dharma master, uh, when asked what awakening is, said uh, what the awakened mind is, he said it's the mind that's intimate with all things. It's ouch mind. Um, and we're being asked uh, in the practice uh, to be intimate, whether you know it or not. Let's say in, in uh, just what we've been doing with breath awareness. If you hear what's being said, uh, what we're all being encouraged to do is to become intimate with the breathing. It's fine to use in, out, to count, anything that helps you begin to concentrate. But inevitably, what's essential is to come to the raw breath sensation, not the word breath. Uh, and it takes a while before whatever we know about breathing, and sometimes people who have professional training, anatomy, physiology, have a harder time because they, their, their mind is filled up with what it is they think they're doing. And all it is is these sensations that are coming in and out. And it's a simple object, but even there, as you know, to be intimate with it takes a while to just completely be one with that breath. Fresh, really alert. Um, in Corrado's instructions this morning, intimacy of practice would be the sound when we can hear it uh, without the ears of yesterday, not yesterday's ears, which that has uh, the accumulations of knowing the name of the bird, uh, knowing its uh, habitat, knowing uh, why it's here and when it's going to fly away and go somewhere else. And as valuable and as uh, enjoyable as that kind of information is, real listening is raw. There's no thinking in it. It's just uh, an empty mirror that completely reflects it. It's not really even a bird sound. It's just chirp, chirp. And as we go from sounds to tastes, you're encouraged to do that at lunch, uh, to the sensations in the body and so forth, it's the same principle. It's the very same principle. But what we're encouraged to become intimate with becomes more highly charged, uh, something more complex in a way. But once you get the knack of it, you don't want to relate to things in any other way, because it's, uh, it's being alive. It's being fully alive. Um, so it's a general teaching. It's not about aging, sickness, and death in particular. But what makes it so interesting, at least to me, is that if intimacy of practice is a reasonable way to look at things for you, if it sounds reasonable to you, and it is for me, uh, then what we're asked to do is there's a kind of tension here. The tension is between, we're being asked 
to become intimate with something that we are pushing away really a lot, aging, sickness, and death, perhaps more than other things. And aging, sickness, and death is something everyone in this room shares. We all share it. It's in our face as the current lack of civil talk goes. And it's something that we want to keep as far away as possible. We, wanna, uh, we don't want to age. We don't want to get sick. We certainly don't want to die. Uh, and so what's being asked of us in general in practice is to become intimate not just with the bird sound, but of course first and foremost with ourselves. First and foremost with ourselves. Because if we can be intimate with ourselves, then everything else follows. That intimate with yourself means the mind is empty of notions about who it is. It's bodhidharma, the famous exchange when the emperor who's annoyed with him for not giving him much credit for being a great emperor and supporting everything says, uh, and who are you? You know, sort of who are you to tell me all these things? And bodhidharma says, I have no idea. He's not lost. He's not a lost soul. He's not confused. He doesn't have amnesia. He means what he's saying. I have no idea. Uh, maybe he's bragging. That might be closest to it. Uh, because an idea would be a representation of who he is to himself and to others. It would be images that we, we, the mind fabricates over and over again. We all know that. We're doing it. And the practice is really is seeing into and letting go of all the ideas that we have about who we were and who we are and who we will be. Uh, and as they fall away and fall away and fall away, we're left with what? I'm not even going to name it. But everything else is a representation. It's like a graduation picture. You know, it's all touched up with pink cheeks and nice white teeth and it's put on the mantelpiece or in someone's wallet, picture of you graduating or married or whatever. And it's one split second when a photographer caught you and then even fixed it up a little bit. <laughs> and that stands for you. But it's not you. Uh, someone asked Plotinus, uh, a great philosopher, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it. Is it Plotinus or Plotinus? Plato? Plotinus? Okay. Uh, his main disciple wanted uh, to have a portrait painted of him. And Plotinus said, uh, was uh, just confused. He said, why would you want a portrait of me? I mean, what you're seeing is just a shadow of the truth, and you want a portrait of that. It would be a shadow of a shadow. So... Uh, we're going deeper and deeper and deeper to that which is, and that's intimacy. Now, if the mind is clear, then it really hears the bird sound for what it is. It hears that. Uh, it sees, and it also uh, can um, be more skillful in terms of the responsiveness, that instead of just reacting all the time from the conditioned place that uh, a lot of our actions originate from, uh, it can come from whatever this is, silence, no mind, organic intelligence, an intelligence that's before thinking. We know it's there. We know uh, it's incredibly brilliant, 
At least some of us do. Passionate, compassionate. All the metta you could ever want is already there. And so we're moving in that direction anyway, whether we took up whether we talk about aging, sickness, and death or not. But aging, sickness, and death, because of their central location, that is, they're uh, they're central to 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 living. I mean, this uh, every one of us must face these issues. No one is exempt from it. And so, to be intimate with it can be even more of a challenge than with, than with other uh, life happenings. And so, that's what's being asked of us. Um, the instructions changed. And we've been practicing uh, now, if, uh, at least from time to time, not simply being with the breathing, but being with whatever is there, right? Since a couple of, since yesterday morning. Whether we call it free attention or choiceless awareness, it isn't real uh, free attention or real choiceless awareness, it's on the way. Uh, we're kind of simulating it. In, in real choiceless awareness, there's no agenda. You're not making a choice as to what should be there. Moreover, you're not for or against what's there, but it's effortless. Even the breath is not necessary. There's, nothing is set up over and above anything else. You're just present. And the natural level of attentiveness is adequate to just experience what's happening. And uh, of course, what you can't help but experience is that everything is coming and going. And as that uh, thorough and intimate understanding of impermanence moves from just being an idea to something that is uh, devoured, eaten, assimilated, digested, becomes part of us, uh, it's just slightly different to understand that it's, there's not self. Everything is... is Nothing is self. It's all, nothing is substantial. It's empty. It's not really such a vague kind of this emptiness, not self. It turns out to be quite concrete and palpable. It, as you see this over and over and over again, as you can examine what's coming up. And so, uh, what we're getting experience practicing with is the wide variety of mind states that visit us. And I know. You've all been visited by many different kinds of creatures, haven't you, since we started? Some you like and are happy they're there, and, but they don't stick around forever and they go, and then others come and we're not too thrilled with some of them. Some of, us, some of them are frightening and, uh, well, you know, what, all, that, all these guests who are living in the mind. And so we're gaining experience in, this, uh, in the sitting practice, watching the coming and going of whatever is. That is, every breath arises and passes away. Every sensation in the body arises and passes away. Every feeling that you have, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, arises and passes away. Every mind state, approved of, disapproved of, greedy mind states, angry mind states, confused mind states, clear mind states, kind mind states, cruel mind states, arises and passes away, and they all lack self. All of them, they're all empty of an enduring core that we can point to and say, this is me. 
So we're uh, in the Anapanasati Sutta, which is uh, uh, a teaching that deals with the four foundations of mindfulness, which is central to all Vipassana practice. The 13th contemplation uh, is translated breathing in the monk or the meditator or the yogi uh, experiences the changing nature of all formations. Breathing out, the yogi experiences the changing nature of all formations. And the 13th is uh, the beginnings of vipassana per se, or is pure vipassana practice. So you're sitting and breathing, and you're seeing that no matter what it is that turns up in this free attention or choiceless awareness, it's impermanent, it's anicca. It comes and it goes. Uh, that kind of training on a microscopic level is preparing you for death awareness. Can you see that it's all the same law? When you see that uh, a dish is chipped and uh, you reflect on it and say, oh yeah, I've had that dish for 10 years and now it's chipped. Mm. You reflect on that, well, I'm chipped too. Uh, I know a number of you know I I just finished a book, and I wanted the Buddha on it to be the Sarnath Buddha, a famous one. And the Sarnath Buddha has a chipped nose. And the art directors at uh, Shambhala didn't want to put it on the cover. They said, it has a chipped nose. (laughs) And I said, but so do we. You know, and I think it's perfect for what this is about. I said, no, no, aesthetically, it has a chipped nose. And I lost the battle, but anyway. So we have a perfect Buddha with a perfect nose now. It's probably chipped wherever he is now. Um, So on one level, this ordinary Vipassana practice is seeing the the law of change at work over and over and over and over. Now maybe you don't draw implications from it, but they're there to be learned from. And as you do that, that can prepare you for uh, seeing that things get born, that they, they inevitably, they age, and they, they must decay and die. They must, all of us. It's natural. It's a law. It's not, we're not being singled out uh, wherever you look. It's not even that you're born into a fixed world. It may seem that way, and then you leave a fixed world. It's like everything's changing at the same time. As you're born into the world, everything else is also happening. It's all happening at the same time. It's all arising and passing away together. We're all, at least that maybe there's some comfort in that. There's a practice, uh, a good one, uh, that comes out of this. I've used it a lot, and I find it very helpful. It's, for me, it's a kind of metta practice. Uh, it's, um, with anyone, I've done it with people, you could do it with any sentient being, I assume, or anything, I guess. Uh, Let's say you're a little bit annoyed with someone or you find yourself getting kind of petty. If you reflect on the fact that uh, all of us are comrades in aging, sickness, and death, it melts your heart when you realize that we're all in this together. This is the Titanic. You don't have to go see the movie. (laughs) It is. We're dancing around and, you know. (laughs) 
having famous love affairs. And, although in that one, a few get out of it. Um, so what can happen is that as you begin to observe life, your own and everyone else's, uh, the sitting practice is uh, a very um, beautiful little laboratory where you see the law of impermanence at work and everything's arranged for us, especially on a retreat, where we can begin to see with increasing depth and intimacy this changing nature and that helps you let go. When we really see that everything that arises passes away, it's intelligent to let go. It's not intelligent to hold on to something that can't stay. It doesn't work. We'll suffer and suffer and suffer. And I know it takes a while for us to get this one. But little by little, as you do it, you start to find yourself more able to let go. Things become easier. Life becomes easier. So seeing the arising and passing away is not just an exercise in bad news or trying to you know, bring down or anything like that. It really helps with letting go. And that's where the joy in practice comes from in the letting go of attachment. And when we look around on a larger level and we see whole civilizations change, cultures change, our neighborhood change, uh, people that we know age, get sick and die. Uh, uh, I remember uh, recently a number of uh, women who were friends of my aunt. Uh, There was a film with Paul Newman and he had a prostate problem in this uh, TV film. And he was also much older in the film. And uh, my aunt told me that they were all very upset because these women had, uh, you know, he was their hero when they were much younger. And now Paul Newman has a prostate problem? (laughs) 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 They didn't want any part of it. Um, I'd like to... uh, end here for this evening. And what I would like to do uh, next time is to uh, give you a taste of how to practice with aging, sickness, and death uh, more uh, from the point of view of natural living. That is, not uh, the formal meditations where you reflect or you have a guided meditation or a visualization. But uh, I'll give you concrete examples from my own life and from other yogis' lives about how not only uh, can this be a very rich practice because we're practicing death awareness in order uh, for, to enhance life. We're shining death on life in order to enhance it. It, it has a way of uh, wiping away a lot of smallness, pettiness, and triviality. In the light of death, most things don't stand up. And we see how we're living. And a lot of it is just, it makes certain kinds of actions which bring suffering less likely to happen. So the re- we're, this is not training in hospice work, which is another valid thing. We're going into this because we're very much alive. And we're doing it for ourselves. So that whatever time we have left can be lived more fully. And if you're a Vipassana practitioner, uh, that you can really... Um, Drink deeply of what's and and flower and and extract the nectar that's possible from this practice, and this is one approach that can help strengthen strengthen us. 
So um, I'd like to end this evening this way um, with a precaution. I got one note of a person who wisely said, I don't feel ready to start dealing with this kind of stuff you're talking about in the evenings. And I thought, that's fine. I mean, I s said that in a note. And I say that to all of you. Uh, this is not saying that everyone has to do this. I'm kind of putting something on your mind with, I don't know, in a way, a limited objective. We have a number of days left. We're here. And most of you know that it's not so easy to get nine days where we have wonderful food and wonderful care and uh, you have virtually no responsibility, a little yogi job, and that's about it, except the people you know, who are in the galley. You know. uh, and we have a, a rare opportunity to, uh, to really deepen what we're doing, to, uh, to not slacken off. Uh, but to do it in a balanced way, not, oh my God, I'm going to get sick, old, and die. I've got to really practice and it just become stiff and tense and miserable. No. It's always the same way. Balance, balance, middle way. Uh, but I hope that in some small way it helps uh, put more energy into this retreat, energy that's refined and useful uh, so that uh, our time here is well spent. Could we have a few moments silence, please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.